Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Hi, I'm Scott Hahn, and I'd like to invite you personally to join me and Breadbox Media on August 24th in New Oxford, Pennsylvania. For a day of spiritual renewal, I'll be presenting three talks, one on St. Joseph, one on the Sacrament of Matrimony, and another one on the Holy Eucharist. Learn more and register at breadboxmedia.com forward slash PA conference. I hope to see you there. Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. Media.com. This is Setting Director Stray with Chuck Hoffman. Do you think we're living in the greatest century? If you really look deeply into the first 19 years of our new century, we're in a very, very fragile state. The magnificently powerful and intellectually sophisticated structures of our extraordinary technology is all built on the Internet. Not all of our technology, but most of it has its foundation in the internet and there's nothing more fragile the internet is the best example of a house of cards that probably ever existed already fatally compromised to an expert hacker all totally transparent our latest innovations have increased this transparency everything on the internet can be viewed and even altered on account of the technological innovations our civilization is very fragile indeed especially so having lost its catholic and christian underpinnings We don't know how that's going to turn out. So it's too soon to say that we're living in the greatest century. Certainly the 20th was not. It was probably the worst century. Certainly in the number of casualties, the number of innocents slain in the cause of atheism and communism. What about the 13th century? That was a rather glorious century. The Catholic Church was at its height. The 13th century is sometimes called the High Middle Ages. Many people think the Middle Ages are the Dark Ages. But actually, the 13th century should be called the Age of Illumination. The usual term for what followed that age is the Enlightenment. The Age of the Enlightenment. When mankind began to rely excessively on rationality and drain all spiritual influences from culture. Its leading philosopher was David Hume. That era should be called the Darkening because it produced horrors and great darkness. Many of the advances in progress, and certainly the foundations for them, usually attributed to the Enlightenment, were actually achieved prior to it, in the Age of Illumination. The Enlightenment was truly the darkening. Of all the achievements of the Age of Illumination, the most symbolic of it is the Gothic Cathedral which was specifically designed to be a glorious tabernacle filled with light, the light of the sun and the light of the presence of Jesus Christ's body and blood, every sort of light mingling in this enlarged tabernacle. 
all of it illuminating us, illuminating us. In that place, we are submerged in God's presence, in God's light. So enough about the 20th century and about our own fragility in our house of cards. Let's contemplate something wonderful. I sense we're all in the mood for a more cheerful podcast. Let's talk about the 13th century. That was an era of a lot of great history. Let's set the record straight about that. One of the great problems that we people who reside in English-speaking areas of the world have is that the war propaganda of England against Catholic Spain became England and the British colonies' official version of actual occurrences rather than inventions. And especially after the divorce of Henry VIII and setting Catherine of Aragon aside, created the illegitimate Tudor line of rulers in England. And when Henry VIII declared himself head of the church, an English pope, it became a holy war of a theocracy. A unified church and state, England, was a theocracy. And their war propaganda against Catholic France and Catholic Spain became their official history. And it was fake history, fake news. It is frequently said by serious historians who go behind these centuries of copied false history and look at the original sources that the English history of recent centuries is actually amounts to, and I'm quoting them, a conspiracy against the truth. Even serious English historians say this. There's a standard multi-volume reference of history, the Cambridge Modern History. The phrase is actually in volume one, I'm quoting it. It says the history of recent centuries. It's taught in all our school textbooks and universities. It's a quote, a conspiracy against the truth. There's a widely used volume called the history of pedagogy. In other words, the history of education by Gabriel Compagnie that is used everywhere. It's a standard reference for serious historians. Go to the internet, enter the history of pedagogy, and you can download it. And it contains the same kind of anti-Catholicism. as statements in it like in 1291 St. Gall Monastery, there was not one person who could read or write. And any that did math, it, it was confined to the sole purpose of calculating the correct date for Easter. Nothing could be farther from the truth. There was widespread literacy. The accusation is laughable. This was a time of immense widespread literacy. Oxford, a Catholic institution at the time, had 30,000 students. You may not be aware that Oxford, during most of its lifetime, has been a Catholic institution. The University of Paris was larger, having more than 40,000 students. I cite them as students. They were all literate. University of Bologna, maybe 20,000. But wait a minute. Europe at the time had a population of about... 50 million. How could there be so many students? How could they support them? There were monasteries everywhere, and there were havens of literacy as well as advanced technology. And what technology? Look at the artistic splendor done with that technology. The Gothic cathedrals, the literature, the intellectual achievements of the age are not matched by any other age. When you look at the music that they so casually sight read in their choirs, it makes you wonder how human intellectual capability could have decayed so far. There were a great number of books. There was a great amount of reading. 
You have to realize at this time, before the Catholic Gutenberg invented the printing press and printed the Catholic Vulgate Bible, all books were copied by hand, and it was the monks that did it. How could all these monks and all these scriptorums, hundreds of scriptorums around Europe, how could they copy books if they were illiterate? Albertus Magnus produced 20 volumes in his lifetimes, and these were copied hundreds, maybe thousands of times for these universities. Sections of them, certainly for thousands of times. One of his volumes is on the physical sciences entirely. Thomas Aquinas also produced 20 volumes, which are copied thousands of times. Another prolific author was Duns Scotus. Sort of interesting that the term Dunce comes from his first name, Duns but his name is D-U-N-S. The traditional terms used in academia, the cap and gown, the term master's, bachelor's degree, all that, doctor philosophy, comes from this age in the preceding century, known as the Great Scholastic Age. There were books available for studies in all these universities for all of these students. What do you think they were studying? There was a great figure, Dante, who lived in this century, a master of literacy, one of the great writers of all time. How could there be all these literate people? Out of a population of 15 million, one out of 20 boys, by papal decree, was sent to be educated at these universities. And they were so dedicated and so devoutly religious that they often only had a little cell with a bed of straw. And everywhere they went and wandered and traveled, it was the order of day to support young students. They lived for free. But there were many wealthy among them. That's a lot of literate young teenagers. But there's more to the story. That although most of them were 12 to 16 years old, there were many mature men among them. Monks, a lot of monks, and priests. In the 13th century, they weren't really nations like we know them. The formation of nations for countries lay in the future. But there were amazing Catholic rulers. Perhaps the greatest Catholic king of this greatest Catholic century was St. Louis, King St. Louis, King St. Louis IX of France. He was born in 1215, early in the century. And at 11 years of old, he became king. His mother, Queen Blanche, did serve as his regent until 1234. And she instructed Louis in the duties and responsibilities of a Catholic monarch. So Louis came into the throne in his own right when he was 19 years old. He had 11 children because he married Margaret of Provence. They were deeply in love, and she was one of his most trusted advisors. King St. Louis consecrated his whole life to the glory of God and to the good of his people in the church. His mother had instructed him this, I would rather see you dead at my feet than guilty of a mortal sin. He spent long hours in prayer and penance and went out to feed daily over a hundred poor. He founded hospitals, ministered to the lepers. He insisted on justice for all his people, poor and rich. He set up the court of the king and judicial commissions, these were called parliaments, which provided local government for the people and decentralized government. He wanted government so close to the people that it conversed with them face to face. He himself went out 
every few weeks, it sat up in town squares to listen directly to the voice of the people, to their complaints, trying to discover what their needs were and how to solve them and how to provide for them. You've traveled all through France hearing grievances and administering justice. We could contrast him with the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick. He was Louis's contemporary in the 13th century. He was elected emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, which was neither holy nor Roman, in 1211. He pretended to be loyal to the Pope and eager to fulfill his duties to the church. But actually, he was an exceedingly ambitious man who had long ago rejected the Catholic faith. He thought of Italy as the heart of his own empire and wanted all the papal lands for his own. And he was attracted by Islam and traveled with a harem and a collection of exotic animals. Actually, he despised Catholic doctrine. There's a story that he imprisoned a man in a barrel to kill him in order to prove that when the barrel was opened, no soul would come out of it and fly up to heaven. He assumed the titles of Divine Emperor, Divinus Augustus, Invincible Son, Sol Invictus. He spread violence and destruction wherever he went. Pope Gregory IX finally excommunicated him because he had proclaimed himself supreme over the Pope. In reaction to this, Frederick arrested all the blood relatives of the Pope and hung them and destroyed villages loyal to the Pope. Then he marched on Rome. Pope Gregory led a procession with the relics of St. Peter and St. Paul, saying that the defense of Rome was in their hands. The people rallied around Gregory, and Frederick decided it would be wiser not to attack. After Gregory died in 1241, there was a vacancy in the papacy. Gregory had wanted to arrest the Pope who was at the Council of Lyons in France. But Lyons was in France, and King Louis would never permit such a crime on his territory. He was prepared to defend the Pope with an army. Frederick again withdrew. With the Pope safe, King Louis returned to his other duties. King Louis was attentive to every little detail of his subjects and talked to them face to face, but he also had a broad vision. He was a brilliant man. He was very concerned about the Muslim occupation of the Holy Land and their cruel treatment of their pilgrims who streamed there from all over Europe as a sacred pilgrimage to the tomb of Christ. He resolved that as a Catholic king, he had to do what he could do to correct this, even if it meant losing his life as a soldier of Christ. Since the Muslims had now won back near all the territory they had lost in the First Crusade, so King Louis went on a crusade with a fleet of 38 vessels, sailing toward the Middle East and decided to start with Egypt. His knights fought bravely, but the Muslim forces gradually wore them down. Louis himself became very ill, as did many members of the army. He decided to negotiate peace terms, but the Muslims put out a rumor that the king was a prisoner, and the only hope of saving his life was for every man to lay down his weapons. His followers loved the king so much that they once surrendered. The Muslims killed any of their captives that were sick, and they chained King Louis to his bed. That wasn't the end of it. To reduce the number of able-bodied prisoners, the Sultan ordered 300 of them to be killed every day. Finally, Louis was able to negotiate a treaty. He'd give the Muslims a town of Damietta, 
which he had conquered, and pay a ransom, so that his men could go free. In order for this bargain to work, the Catholics had to hold the town of Damietta until the peace treaty was concluded. So the Muslims decided to conquer the city and take it ahead of time. Louis would have nothing to trade. So guess what? His wife, Queen Margaret, organized the defense of Damietta. She rallied the knights and courageously directed the army, even though she gave birth to a baby during this time. So the treaty was signed. The Muslims took the city. King Louis was freed. His men were freed. King Louis' three sons were freed. Louis stayed in the Holy Land four years, using diplomacy to keep the Muslims at bay. Finally, he had to return to France. Louis often dressed as a peasant, barefoot with a simple tunic. As a last act, he and his three sons took up the cross, resolving to land at Tunis in North Africa to recover it from the Muslims. But the plague broke out in their camp, and Louis contracted it and died. There's so much to say about this century. Art and literature reached new heights during the High Middle Ages. We call this the High Middle Ages. An Italian shepherd named Giotto became the founder of a new school of art which portrayed reality realistically and beautifully. Another Italian, a poet named Dante, wrote a great masterpiece, The Divine Comedy. In this poem, an imaginary journey by Dante through hell, purgatory, and heaven, Dante gives an overall picture of medieval life and faith. The Catholic Church worked to establish rules of warfare so that fighting became less brutal and to encourage men to use their weapons only against the enemies of Christendoms instead of against each other. Out of this effort grew the institution of chivalry, a code of Catholic conduct for knights. In all things, the knight was expected to be honorable and courageous, to protect the weak, and to defend the rights of the Catholic Church. Another great advance during the Middle Ages was the freeing of the serfs. New inventions made it possible for an individual man to work more land so that more food could be produced by fewer men. Farmers, therefore, had more free time and were not so closely tied to the land. The church had always acted to protect the serfs from ill treatment by their overlords. Now the church began freeing whatever serfs were still working on lands owned by the abbeys and bishops. Gradually, the nobles followed the church's example, so that more and more men came to own their own land. Even parishes began to have their own schools. Uh, one of the great Protestant myths is that the church tried to keep people in ignorance so that they would not question the decisions of the bishops. Well, the opposite is true. Without the church, education would not have existed. Modern science had its beginnings during this period especially through the efforts of St. Albert the Great and Roger Bacon, who learned to observe and experiment with nature. Actually, Bacon did more than anybody else to develop the scientific method. It didn't happen during the Enlightenment. It happened during this period. Bacon's book on the secrets of art and nature contained predictions of such inventions as steamboats, balloons, cranes, submarines, microscopes, telescopes, and gunpowder. Of course, he was a monk. He was Friar Roger Bacon. He formulated the laws of the reflection 
and refraction of light and wrote a whole book to prove the absurdity of magic. Light. Our subject is light. Different kinds of light. The light of reason was at its peak. The golden age of scholasticism. Thomas Aquinas, Albert the Great, Friar Roger Bacon, and other luminous names of the golden age of scholasticism. The light of prosperity was glowing comfortably. The light of a time of men rendered so peaceful that their wars were minor wars compared to other times. The brilliant 13th century. The light of the Catholic Church. Of a flock of people united within Christ's great gift to us of a radiant Catholic Church and of a people brought together to share knowledge, to communicate. For people were unified, unified by the shapely classical order of the clearly proportioned Latin language. In this warm period, men were inspired by the golden light of the sun. Think of the Gothic cathedrals, a product of this era. The great invention of the master builder, Suger, the Frenchman. This genius set out to solve the problem of bringing more light into the churches, to bring more light through the stained glass windows so that every color of the spectrum, every color of God's covenant with us and all creatures, the rainbow could play across the faces and hands of all the congregation that crowded the cathedrals in those days. At every mass, those cathedrals were jammed. So you and I are thinking about light and the source light, the origin light, God's light. The great multifaceted abbot Suger was not the architect of Saint-Denis, the first Gothic church, the prototype for later Gothic cathedrals. No, he was the patron, but he was the fuse, the power, the vision. There were two architects who did the actual design. These three men were confronted with a great challenge of structural design to make the supports for this immensely weighty, very tall building. They wanted to design pillars and supports that were slender, sturdy, powerful, but thin, slender, delicate, so that the maximum amount of light could enter the cathedrals, so that they did not include the sunlight. The great problem for Suger and for builders generally for the next two or three centuries was how to build high, span broad interior spaces and remove stone from walls and replace it with glass without having the walls buckle or the roof cave in. They came up with ingenious engineering solutions. I've always looked at those cathedrals and wondered whether they were inspired by the marvelously beautiful and strong design of the exoskeleton of insects. Whatever the source of inspiration, these designs were beautiful and they worked. You've probably seen some of them. There are the flying buttresses, spindles of stone, thrust out from the exterior walls like the spokes of a wheel, the rope-like interior ribs of marble, perfectly hewn, often alternating colors, white, pink, green, gray, reaching up along pillars to the roof in slender curves, the blocks not mortared but set in place by the magic of balance and gravity. Maybe you've seen the lacework of stone tracery setting off the windows stained in deep blue and red and green and gold rose windows with the mathematical complexity of a magnificent flower. They are like a kaleidoscopic lens into paradise. It's a miracle how they made them. What about why? Why did they build them this way? Well, the great abbot Suger wrote something about his work. 
that should arrest our attention. These verses were engraved on the doors of St. Denis. All you who seek to honor these doors, marvel not at the gold and expense, but at the craftsmanship of the work. The noble work is bright, but being nobly bright, the work should brighten then the minds, allowing them to travel through the lights to the true light, where Christ is the true door. The golden door defines how it is imminent in these things. The dull mind can rise to the truth through material things and is resurrected from its former submersion when light is seen. So wrote the man to whom in great part we must give credit for giving birth to the Gothic style. Here's a medieval man reveling in both the bright and beautiful things of the world and the infinitely brighter things of heaven. The beauty of the world is not rejected but ordered toward the beauty of heaven. Deep calls unto deep and light unto light. Some people have said that colors have a theological meaning, the one inaccessible light of God, made manifest incarnate in the objects of our sight. So the stained glass windows are meant to reveal a trace, just a trace, of that luminous feast in paradise. Now, if these glories were confined to the church or to a precious manuscript with its indigo and emerald and scarlet. How did this affect the life of the common people? What we find hard to fathom now is that those common people were the ones that built the churches. We're not talking about huge, indistinguishable blocks of stone hauled up the side of a pyramid by sledge and slave to commemorate a dead pharaoh. We're not talking even about the Athenian Parthenon but a group of master sculptors hammering at the pediment. We're talking about free men, troops of them, moving in from place to place, paid pretty well, masters of their crafts, with local laborers for the less skilled work. We don't know the names of most of those, and that too is telling, for the work is not designed and mandated by potentates far away. It is true folk art, folk art, maybe the most muscular and magnificent folk art the world has ever known. You have to remember that the church was the heart of the life of the life of those common people. And those people dwelt in the shadow and the reflected gleam of these places of beauty. You have to remember what it was to own with the rest of your townsmen, to own a structure that pierced the skies with its grandeur, Yet that also welcomed you in, and that stood an eloquent witness when you were born, when you were married, when you had children, and when you died. It was yours. It was inherited by each generation. If you lived in a town with a cathedral that had built a cathedral, it was yours. The whole of Gothic cathedrals are scrawled over with playfulness. Maybe over here, working away, you'll see a gangly boy, maybe named Watt, not yet a master, chiseling the leer of a dragon whose mouth will gush rainwater and will keep the roof from leaking. Over there, a carpenter works at a coffered wooden ceiling, gouging out for decoration and for affirming the goodness of all God's creatures, the flowers and animals of his native land. 
Back toward the sanctuary, a priest may be asking the glaziers for a rose window in the east based on the number eight, since the eighth day is Easter, the day beyond all days, the day of resurrection. The townsfolk who have contributed much to the building will also gain from it. People will come to see the church, and people will need food and drink and lodging, for the church is also an expression of town pride and love, and if it takes 50 or 60 years to build or more, the people bequeath the project to their children. It is their great artistic and economic triumph. Where did all that energy come from? It was the faith. It was the Catholic faith that brought that energy into being. These cathedrals have been called sermons in stone. And they're all built to take the light, to provide vast interior supported spaces so that the enormous windows can bring in the light, light of every color in the spectrum. Will Durant, in his History of Civilization series of books, says that great art is the child of a triumphant faith. Then the sculptures of these Catholic Gothic cathedrals really have no rival anywhere. These sculptures that were an integrated component of the cathedrals were conceived not as an independent, but as one phase of an integrated art for which no language has a name, the adornment of worship. Primarily, the sculpture's function was to beautify the house of God with statuary and reliefs, secondarily to make images or icons to inspire piety in the home. In church sculpture, the preferred material was some lasting substance like stone marble, alabaster, bronze. But for statuary, the church preferred the lighter substance of wood. Such figures should be borne in processions without agony by sturdy Catholics marching in religious pageantry. Statues were painted as in ancient religious art, and they were often quite realistic. The purpose was to make the worshiper feel the presence of the saint through the image. At the Chartres Cathedral, from the 12th century. Figures are somber and rather stiff. At the Cathedral de Reims in France, in the 13th century, they're caught in natural conversation or spontaneous action. The features of the statues are individual. There's grace in their pose. Many of the figures on these two cathedrals resemble the bearded peasants that still meet us in French villages. On the west portal of the Cathedral at Amiens, the shepherd warming himself might be a Norman of today. No sculpture in history rivals the whimsical veracity of Gothic cathedral reliefs. And at the cathedral at Rouen, crowded into little quatrefoils, we find a meditative philosopher with the head of a pig, a doctor, half man and half goose, studying another file of urine, a music teacher, half man and half rooster, giving a lesson on the organ to a centaur, a man changed by a sorcerer into a dog, whose feet still wear his boots. Funny little figures crouch under the statues at Chartres. A capital on the Strasbourg Cathedral shows the burial of Renard the Fox. A boar and a goat carried his coffin, a wolf bore the cross, a hare lighted the way with a taper, a bear sprinkled holy water, a stag sang mass, an ass chanted the funeral service from a book resting on the head of a cat. In England, at Beverly Minster, a fox, cowled like a monk, 
preaches from a pulpit to a congregation pious geese. Is that exuberant enough for you? So the cathedrals, among other things, are menageries in stone. Almost all animals known to man, and many known only to medieval fantasy, find some little tolerant space in these immense cathedrals that they can inhabit. At Leon, 16 bulls lower on the cathedral towers. They represent, we are told, the mighty beast that through patient years transported the stone blocks from the quarries to the hilltop church. There's a legend that one day an ox laboring upward fell in exhaustion. The load was precariously poised on a slope when a miraculous ox appeared, slipped into the harness, drew the cart to the summit, and then vanished into the thin supernatural air. A rather endearing feature of cathedrals is that they always found a place for a botanical garden. Next to the Virgin, the angels, and the saints, what better ornament could there be for the house of God than the plants, fruits, flowers of the French or English or German countryside? On some of these cathedrals, the reliefs tell the story of the creation. At Ilions, the Creator counts on his fingers the remaining days of the seven that he took to create the universe. In later scenes, we see him tired with his cosmic toil, leaning on his staff, sitting down to rest, finally going to sleep. This is a sweet portrayal of God that any peasant could relate to. Other cathedral reliefs show the months of the year, each month with its distinctive work and distinctive joy. Others show the occupations of mankind. Peasants in the field or at the wine press, some guiding horses or oxen and breaking furrows or pulling carts. Others shearing sheep or milking cows. There's millers, carpenters, porters, merchants, artists, scholars, and a philosopher, too, of course. Will Durant writes about the Gothic sculpture, that there's a depth of feeling in it, a variety and energy of life, a sympathy with all the forms of the plant and animal world, a tenderness, a gentleness, and grace, a miracle in stone revealing not flesh, but the soul. These sculptures touch you when the bodily excellence of the Greek statuary is lost. Beside the living figures of medieval faith, the heavy gods of the Parthenon pediment seem cold and dead. Gothic sculpture is technically deficient. There's nothing in it that can match the perfection of the Parthenon or the handsome gods and goddesses of Praxiteles. Today, our allegiance to Catholicism, remembering its loveliness, slip us back, bring us back again and again to the great cathedrals and tip the scales to the beautiful God of Amiens, the smiling angel at Reims, and the virgin at Chartres. Why did they build so many churches in the three centuries after 1000? What need was there in a Europe with hardly a fifth of its present population for these churches so vast that they're now rarely filled even on the holiest of days? How can an agricultural civilization afford to build such costly edifices? The population was small, but it believed. It was poor, but it gave. The construction was financed largely by the accumulated funds of the Episcopal See. In addition, the bishops solicited gifts from kings, nobles, communes, guilds, parishes, and individuals. 
the cathedrals became the symbol and challenge of their wealth and power. Competition for building funds was keen. If in some of these appeals for funds, there was a small amount of pressure, let's draw a little comparisons with ourselves today. They hardly rivaled the intensity that mobilized the public financing of a modern war. How many of our cities have gone deeply into debt, sometimes irrecoverably so, to finance an astrodome or a football stadium? We might suspect that our own age has a different sense of what divinity we should sacrifice for. From all of the evidence that we have from the 13th century, the people themselves did not feel exploited when they contributed funds. They hardly missed the might they individually gave. They felt a sense of achievement and pride. A home for their worship, a meeting place for their community, a school of letters for their children, a school of arts and crafts for their guilds, a pictorial Bible in stone that was designed to be full of light, whereby they might contemplate in statue and picture the story of their Catholic faith. The house of the people was the house of God. But what of the question of who really designed the cathedrals? Very few of the designers of cathedrals were priests or monks. They were professional architects. They called them master builder or sometimes master mason. And these terms reveal the origin of these men. They began as artisans, physically engaged in the work they later directed. We do know the names of many such architects after the year 1000. We know the names of 137 of them, architects of Gothic cathedrals, and medieval Spain alone. And yes, some of them inscribed their names on their buildings, and a few wrote books about their craft. The artists who did the more delicate work, who carved the figures and reliefs, or painted the windows or walls, or decorated the altar, the choir, were not distinguished from the artisans by any special name. The artist was a master artisan, and every industry strove to be an art. Much of the work was distributed by contract among the guilds, to which artists and artisans both belonged. What is most incredible is that the design and proportions of the cathedral were based on the human body. Yes, the proportions of the cathedral and the way it was laid out were not at all what we might think calibrated out with measuring rods. No, it wasn't done that way. It was done by a sense of sacred geometry, by a contemplation of organic proportions and especially proportions of the human body. And honor the proportions of the Immaculate Mother of God. And in honoring her, honor all women. I have to admit, I love thinking about the Age of Illumination. I just decided I'm going to do more about this. There's so much more. If you want to hear more about the Age of Illumination, then listen next week on breadboxmedia.com and setting the record straight. There's a lot of delights to be had.
this is international Catholic singer Anna Nuzzo inviting you to join me and Father Dan Cambra of the Marian Fathers on a select international tours Divine Mercy pilgrimage to Poland and the Czech Republic. It takes place in September of 2019, and we would love for you to join us. For more information, go to my website, AnnaNuzo.com. Thank you, and God bless. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com.